Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of Hints for Healing. I'm Nicole Lure, School Liaison Officer at STARTS, which is the New South Wales-based service for the treatment and rehabilitation of torture and trauma survivors. And I'm the editor of the Hints for Healing website. And today I have the honour of hosting the Hints for Healing podcast for the first time. But most importantly, I want to acknowledge that I'm recording on the land of the Terramaragal people. And I pay my respects to the traditional custodians of this land, to their ancestors, their elders, past, present and emerging, and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people tuning in today. I really want to thank Sean Nemorin for the fantastic job that he's done hosting the first four episodes of the podcast. And I can now talk from personal experience that Sean just does a stellar job of helping his guests feel at ease, asking insightful questions. And as I'm sure you agree, he has great intuition for which conversational paths to follow to make the episode as engaging and educational as possible. Having said all that, I now have gigantic shoes to fill. But fear not, Sean will be back in the host seat from time to time to interview our fabulous guests, so you won't have to miss him too much. And you certainly won't have to miss him at all today, as he is my guest on the show. My guest, Sean Nemorin, is a psychotherapist and community development practitioner. And since 2017, he's the team leader of the school liaison team at Starts. He holds a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's in social work. And prior to working at Starts, he worked with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in places such as China, Burundi, the Northern Mali border with Burkina Faso, Nepal, and the Bangladesh Myanmar border. He's also worked alongside Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory. So hi, Sean, welcome to the show. Hey. <laughs> no, not as a host this time, but as an honored guest. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So to start, we'd just love to hear from you what your role is at Starts and what led you um, to the work that you're doing now with Starts. Okay, um, well, well, as you mentioned before, so I, I manage the school liaison program at Starts, and uh, I guess I should say in case, you know, um, people who have never listened to the podcast before, Starts is the New South Wales Service for the Treatment and Rehabilitation of Torture and Trauma Survivors, and we're a specialist agency which works alongside refugee survivors, survivors of torture and trauma. Um, heal from psychological scars of war and systemic state-sponsored terrorism. Um, STARTS uh, is a part of a national forum of agencies which provides support to torture and trauma survivors called FAST. And similarly, we're a part of um, the global IRCT movement. So the International Rehabilitation Council for, Tor for Victims of Torture. Um, and this is the, the global movement, the global fight to see those who've been impacted by torture and trauma, receive the support they need, legal, psychological, and otherwise. Um, the school liaison program specifically is quite multifaceted um, in that as a program, we work across the state of New South Wales and 
the overarching aim of the program is um, to support schools to meet the psychological needs of learners with the refugee experience and that they may be able to thrive. Um, this might mean providing support to teachers and school counsellors in better understanding the refugee experience and the impact of trauma in classrooms and in schools. Otherwise, it might mean working through the systems of inequity, which might prohibit access um, for, for those learners to receive the curriculum. It might also mean individual, and it often does mean individual and group therapeutic work with survivors who've been um, recently resettled to Australia and who are enrolled in New South Wales schools. Um, you know, the, the young people and children um, that we work with, they come from a variety of different backgrounds. Um, you know, young people from places like Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Myanmar, Congo, amongst others. Um, and yeah, so you said, what what brought me to this field? Um, and well, I, I guess it's, it's, a, it's something of a long story. Um, uh, Perhaps it's been a little while, and um, but I first began working with young people with a refugee experience um, as a volunteer youth worker in the year 2000, actually. So um, whilst I was studying psychology 21 years ago, um, and at the time I was involved in a mentoring program, and I worked alongside teenagers from um, places like Bosnia and, and and others from you know who had left the um, who had fled the the, the civil war in Colombia. Um, yet it was, uh, it was actually probably a year later, um, which was the, 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 the time that influenced me the greatest. And it was whilst I was, um, whilst I was on student exchange in France and, um, you know, I'd spent some time, um, uh, you know, in my youth in places like France and Belgium, I'd gone to school, etc., and, one of the things that was quite synonymous with that experience was that almost universally that the perception of Australianhood or being Australian, you could say, was um, it was exceptionally positive. And um, this was perhaps uh, influenced by, you know, it was probably influenced by a rather sheltered experience, um, you know, my own sheltered experience. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd not at that time been exposed to conflicting narratives to a non-tarnished Australian outward persona. Um, and similarly, as, as you know, as a part of my schooling and, and environment, I've not been exposed to, you know, the trauma experienced by Aboriginal communities, both past and present. Um, and I guess this similarly reinforced, um, and it was similarly reinforced by um, external validation, um, you know, as I can attest that the mention of being Australian overseas was, you know, met with vehement positivity. Um, and yet, you know, this one time while studying in France, um, you know, I was met with local students at that time. I was met with local students in, in, in disbelief at that time. It was around 2001 that the Australian government was placing asylum seekers who had arrived by boat in desert camps mm. surrounded by barbed wire. And, you know, it was also prevent and the, the government was also, you know, preventing boats arriving in Australia at the time people who were requesting support in fear of their lives. And, you know, I recall it being a really quite a strange experience. Um, it felt like a personal affront to be associated with such injustice. And, and um, you know, when I'd always perceived Australia to represent the obvious. Um, I guess you could say that perhaps this was the influential moment 
for me in terms of, you know, where I wanted to position my career. And, you know, upon return to Australia, I met an Iranian father and son, you know, who was supporting Hazara Afghans through legal asylum claims, you know, coupled with, uh, you know, support for family reunification. And furthermore, you know, I was making quite regular visits to Villawood Detention Centre at the time. You know, I did that for, you know, some three years um, during and after I finished my bachelor's degree in psychology. Um, you know, I, waited, I later went and, uh, and did graduate studies in peace, conflict and development studies. And I later, you know, afterwards, I, I started working with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, I first started in the, the regional office in China, covering the People's Republic, Hong Kong and uh, Mongolia. Um, I actually began working with UNHCR under a program called AID, um, or the Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development program, which was under AusAid at the time. It's now defunct, but, you know, you used to send young professionals under the age of 30 to work in developing context um, for the UN, um, international NGOs, um, and uh, some grassroots organizations. Um, in, in Beijing, I, I oversaw the community services responsibilities for the operation, including mental health and psychosocial support, child protection, um, education and welfare services. Found it a really um, interesting political context, you know, working with asylees from places like North Korea, Amadis from Pakistan, Iraq, and a plethora of other African countries, where it was actually quite, you know, it was relatively easy to obtain a Chinese visa to the influence in which um, China had in the continent. Um, I did that for four years in that operation, um, after which I, I went uh, to Nepal directly after the People's War. I then served in, in Cox Bazaar, Bangladesh with the Rohingya community. Um, I spent close to three years in that protracted emergency situation. And uh, furthermore was in Mongdo in Myanmar. Um, during the time which culminated into the fighting which took place in June 2012. Um, again, uh, I was overseeing community services, mental health and psychosocial support and education in emergencies. And I did other you know, um, deployments, for example, you know, in the war in Northern Mali and also was tasked with supporting the commencement um, of mass resettlement of Congolese from uh, Burundian refugee camps. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, my, my father was diagnosed with cancer in 2013, and due to his deterioration, I, I resigned from my, my post with UNHCR in, um, in Moinga in Burundi, and I returned to Sydney in um, 2014 um, after the best part of a decade abroad, and I started with starts um, directly after return. Oh, Sean, that's an incredible breadth and depth of experiences you had over those years. And, and I'm so sorry about um, the loss of your father as well. There's so many um, acute situations that you must have found yourself in over those years. So now I'm wondering what sort of adaptive processes did you use to sustain you through those experiences? Um, how can I say? Um, in terms of you know, if I reflect a bit on my career and I guess a lot around the strengths and the resilience, um, you know, I guess in some ways it's, it was influenced by the way in which the work was structured um, and also in, in many ways also 
how the work replicated an environment which you know was deeply adaptive and re and, and reminiscent to what um, we've evolved as humans to be um, and let me explain um, I think the the, the journalist uh, Sebastian Junger talks about this in the book tribe um, and I really highly recommend that book if anyone's interested in reading um, quite a you know very astute depiction of post-traumatic stress and and um, you know Junger talks about PTSD amongst veterans and um, the things which motivate soldiers um, most in the field um, and you know he simply puts it down to love and you know it sounds a bit simplistic to say but um, you know I can absolutely attest to having felt similarly amongst my colleagues and also the intimacy that you have with those that you work with and and you know Junger harks back to our hunter-gatherer roots and um, and also around the innate needs of humans the the social connectivity in which we've evolved and you know our collective survival based on the interconnectedness with our neighbors with our brethren you know and mm. And this is something which is deeply adaptive to our survival and of course to our own humanity you could say and i guess in many ways the army and and other similar you know professions or context you know um you know it, it replicates that and and therefore outside of that context and outside of the adaptive and positive attributes provides a a huge loss you know it's a disconnection with you know with others who you feel might not necessarily understand that experience and you know it's a disconnection which also contributes to the loss of self and the exacerbation of stress caused by the prolonged periods of conflict um you know the prolonged period in conflict that you know many of our clients experience and you know, it's the impact, you know, that we know that the prolonged periods of stress hormones and nervous system activation and, you know, upon return, yeah, as I said before, it's that loss of connection to those who may understand, you know, yeah. the shared experience which promulgates, which then promulgates the, the symptomology. So, hmm. you know, so, and, yeah. Go on. No, no, please continue. And I, I, I guess I just wanted to finish um, with that, that, you know, whilst there's a lot of maladaptive, um, you know, factors within engaging in contexts of, you know, mass display and, you know, where, you know, where, where there's a lot of insecurity, um, the reality is, I'd go back in a heartbeat if I could. Mm -hmm. And it's because of those reasons that, you know, I've described. It's because, because of, that, of that connection. Absolutely. Mm. Because of that connection, not just to your colleagues, but also to those you work with. And, you know, in many ways, I, I, I even describe that as, as post-traumatic growth. And it's, it's something that I miss deeply. Um, I miss that sense of purpose. I miss the colleagues. You know, I miss the relationships you develop in, in, in contexts of insecurity. It's the, and, you know, it's the interactions void of walls you know that then you juxtapose you know against um you know it's it's a juxtaposition you know against such a divergence from that um which seems so natural um you know 
to now, you know, in our Sydney um, comfortable, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. So what is it then that, that, yeah. um, you know, what, what Robert Putnam describes as the decrease in social capital, the, you know, the, the breakdown of social connectivity, um, you know, in his seminal book, Bowling Alone. Yeah. So what is it then that um, continues to inspire and motivate you in the work that you're doing now, mainly Sydney-based um, and New South Wales-based through Starts? I guess... I think it's a, it's a it's it's still very much a continuation of um, yeah absolutely it's a continuation of what I started you know um, two decades ago but I, I think um, and I've often described this work as a lot more than a job per se um, but it's and I'm sure some other people can you know I'm sure many other people would would. Um, would describe similarly but you know it's something akin to a lifestyle you know and you know perhaps it's something that you know I would have done even if I wasn't paid for it or you know whether my roles did not fall within a, a framework of, of a particular occupation in which I was qualified to do and um, you know it's to support the most vulnerable people who have been yeah. hurt to achieve their goals and to to go on to live successful lives and mm. there's there's no greater honor than that you know yeah, it's and incredibly meaningful absolutely and and mm. and there's also personal reasons too and you know as i see myself in my clients and and those that we support you know i i see that the, the sometimes confused brown or, or black kid hurting mm. and you know i the the son of migrants and it's still in me you know yeah. You know, sometimes I, I feel the, the unfairness, the, the loneliness and, you know, the, the racism or the fear of racism, the fear of not being accepted. And, and that's probably all the, the motivation that, you know, I'll ever need. And, you know, to have a role as a therapist or otherwise supporting young people to overcome, you know, yeah. to show themselves that they are good, you know, to help them show others that they are good and to help galvanize those often self-healing tools you know, which can help them become psychologically whole. You know, well, there are, you know, a few other jobs that I could see myself in. And mm. I mean, I mean, I guess you could say that one of the things which motivates the journey is, is also one of empathy for, you know, for a struggle which I went through and, and, and perhaps not the same extent to what, you know, those that we work with, you know, the, the victims of war have, but yet, you know, em, you know empathetic, engagement exists yet i also acknowledge that it's important to associate that empathy with the occupational hazards of the work as a therapist as a humanitarian worker as a teacher mm. as basically anyone who engages intimately with survivor stories and you know it was laurie perlman and, and others who uh, who influenced me um, in um probably the most in relation to research around the terms you know secondary traumatic stress and mm. vicarious trauma you know, these are terms which were coined um, in observing people in the helping professions who were often profoundly impacted by their exposure to indirect trauma. You know, symptoms, yeah. post-traumatic stress, um, you know, even if they are not themselves in danger anymore or in the, you know, line of fire, you know, people can 
report things like, you know, intrusive thoughts, nightmares, you know, things like an intense preoccupation around client stories, mm. often long after the encounters. And over time, you know, this may develop into um, vicarious traumatization, you know, and, uh, you know, which is often described as a shift in, in worldview, um, mm. you know. So how has um, some of your own trauma recovery work that you've had to do, how has that continued to influence um, your therapeutic work? I guess, um, yeah, I, I mean, first, I, I just want to describe um, on some of the, um, I guess, perhaps one of the reasons as to why I wasn't privy to a lot of these things before when I first started going, you know, when I first started working okay. in the field and, you know, the, the concept of vicarious trauma whilst it's, you know, whilst it's become increasingly pervasive in knowledge, probably in the last, you know, 10 years or so, there, there really wasn't a great recognition um, of its, of its impact um, and, and its recognition as a, um, as an occupational hazard um, in this form of work previously. It was virtually unheard of when, you know, whilst I was working in the field and, you know, I began to recognise a lot um, of the behaviour which I, I previously described amongst colleagues um, and, and, and perhaps also amongst myself, you know. Um, uh, you know, and uh, you know, something, things like, um, you know, addictive behaviours in which you know, many people might associate with post-traumatic stress, you know, things like alcoholism, you know, excessive drug use, sexual promiscuity and inappropriate interpersonal boundaries. You know, there was, I observed sometimes exploitation and, and um, you know, similarly, but, but similarly there were the, the maladaptive avoid, avoidant um, behaviours that were actually praised by organisations, praised in such contexts. Um, you know, where people would become workaholics, you know, and, you know, unnecessarily working until midnight every night, working themselves to the ground, you know, and these were things which were celebrated, um, you know, where it was often results-driven um, and often to meet donor needs and not actually client expectations. And and these are amongst the things which are endemic in the environment where, um, you know, where boundaries were quite quite blurred um the, the the very work itself became addictive um with individuals going from sometimes from one emergency deployment to the next um the next fix so to speak and mm -hmm. unable to simply rest you know did you feel the, caught up in that as well oh yeah definitely yeah absolutely because less you know um when you actually sit down that you can actually you actually process um, of your experiences, which then becomes sometimes overwhelming. Yeah. Mm. So think, once you yeah. built your awareness of some of those those risks of vicarious traumatization and the behaviors, like the avoidant behaviors you referred to and the addictive behaviors, um, how did you manage those risks and how do you continue to manage those risks in this work? Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess I could take you through my, I guess, my, my, my journey of, of healing. Um, mm. And then I could also talk on some of the work that, um, that I continually do. Um, and, you know, I attribute a lot of my approaches to client work from my own recovery, um, you could say. And perhaps in a way, 
um, you know, we, we tend to preference the therapeutic approaches which have had an impact on our own lives. And I too have been influenced deeply by um, my own journey through loss. And, um, you know, a big part has been around narrative practice and similarly around the use of storytelling. Um, I've been deep, I've been deeply impacted by um, the ideas of um, of Carl Jung, C.G. Jung, and and um, particularly the concept around the, the psyche self healing mechanism. Um, mm. And I find it very comforting um, in the in the idea that that it's looking for a pathway towards healing. Um, it's looking for a pathway to be whole, and and sometimes the creative therapies can achieve such in ways in which some of the talk based um, therapeutic approaches might not. And um, for me, uh, it perhaps came through um, uh, an acquaintance or a, a reacquaintance, you could say, with the uh, with the inner child um, and something which was lost. And for me, it specifically came through the, the telling of childhood football stories. Um, growing up, I, I spent a lot of time playing football. Mm. And um, if I can provide any tips or or any hints for healing, so to speak, um, is that, you know, as a basic engagement tool to build rapport with children and adolescents, um, particularly males, um, but obviously girls too, um, from a, you know, from a refugee experience is that, you know, to have a basic knowledge or at least interest in football. Okay. Um, I'm going to need to work on that, Sean. We'll have to talk after. Okay. The, yeah, uh, the, the round ball game. Um, um, the one which you know people mostly use their feet, otherwise referred to as soccer in this country. Um, you know, it's 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 really important. Um, you know, because I guess, you know, in in almost every refugee context I've worked in around the world, um, mm. there's almost a universality in terms of people playing that game. It's essentially community development or engagement with refugee communities 101. But I guess I, I digress a bit. Um, but I guess it's linked as well because you know in Australia growing up, um, it was it was a sport championed by the migrant and the refugee in yeah. this country. And um, and you know I, I was one, and 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 there we were. Yeah. And you know me and me and my father, and, and and later my sister. And you know what I didn't know at the time, and and which only later became apparent was was its sense of place in our lives and um, which also helped establish a sense of purpose, a sense of safety for my father in, in a place where he might not have necessarily felt comfortable at home, you know, um, perhaps hurting from the loss of a previous home and country mm. and, and navigating a land not entirely representative of his culture and, and ethnicity. And, uh, you know, I'd not been, you know, I'd not been involved you know, for many years since, I mean, after I left Australia until I came back and, you know, I was experiencing my own mental health concerns. And and I recall when I came back, I, I was working with a group of, I was working therapeutically with a group of Afghan boys and um, we were using sports, particularly football, as a psychosocial tool and, um, in which they could find safety through meaningful engagement in physical activity and you know, cognitive behavioural strategies around goal setting and, and you also did breathing and, uh, and mindfulness techniques to work through anger management and um, 
nervous system activation. Um, but it was through this work that I began to remember what it was like, you know, for me growing up as a youth through football. And, and, and one day, um, inexplicably, I, I found myself drawn to football grounds. I'd spent time on um, as a child and in my adolescence. And, you know, I can't describe the feeling adequately to you, but you know, I recall when I was working on, when I was walking, sorry, um, on those grounds, you know, I was experiencing intense emotion mm. and, you know, sometimes tears streaming down my face. And, you know, I'd, I'd recall people I'd not thought of in many years, you know, random mundane incidents, you know, playing sport and, and it would cause me to write down these simple experiences, things which I'd lived. And I did that every day. And I did it for well over a year. And, wow. um, and those were the essence of a blog I created called Sydney Soccer Stories. And if you'd like, you know, people can also go and have a look at that and see some of the stories that I used to write and taking photos of these football grounds. And, um, but, you know, as is often the case with these things, um, a lot, for a long part of it, I thought that the purpose of the blog was to bring recognition to community and, and, and migrants who had invested so much time in the development of soccer, because of course that's what it was called growing up, soccer. And, and it was a tribute to the WOG, you know, soccer, WOG ball, you know, in, in Australia, which I grew up with. And it was through the, the football grounds where their stories, you know, it was, you know, the expression of asset-based community development and community endeavors, which I, I perceived were fundamentally about their own healing, about mm -hmm. finding safety and, and a sense of place in a new land, longing for the family, yet using that mechanism as a language to communicate with others. And yet the, the way I was highlighting this was actually through my own stories, you know, my own experiences with my family and um, the connections I made with others. You know, it was a deconstruction of pervasive narratives, which, you know, which uh, elicited the migrant or refugee, not as dependent, but the one who was, you know, who was um, resourceful, who was self-reliant and, and passionate. And, um, and some people followed it. And, and those who, you know, people who had experienced similarly would, would reach out. And, you know, as I found myself doing this, I felt increasingly whole, you know, mm. I felt more connected to a land and place I've not known for many years here. And, and yet, perhaps, fundamentally, um, it was my own unique way of feeling psychologically whole. And upon doing this, I was, I was highlighting that my story shared, um, you know, a, a, you know, a universal theme of connection. And, um, and then one day, you know, someone said to me, oh, yeah, um, I've been following your blog. And he said, oh, if you build it, he will come. Uh, it sounds uh, like that, there's just so many elements there that were that was supportive and therapeutic to you just hearing you speak. It sounded like the the action of actually physically being in those soccer fields yeah, um, as opposed yeah. to just talking about them or thinking about them or looking at photos was helpful. Yeah. Yeah. the writing as you mentioned and then and then it sounded like the, the rather unexpected element of so many people 
loving what you were writing and and sharing their own um, memories and reflections on what you wrote was also part of the healing for you. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that th th that was the fundamental um, design of it. In that I wasn't conscious of it. I thought it was for others, but fundamentally it was about myself. Mm. You know, and um, <laughs> but that's often what happens in these circumstances, right? And I realised that what you know, I'd, I'd, I'd established an online, uh, you know, digital pathway towards the, the hero's journey through that process. And, you know, I'd created a narrative towards my own recovery as, you know, as the stories I was sharing were predominantly those shared with, you know, a lost father, you know. So yeah. as, you know, as a narrative has a conclusion, the end involved, you know, a place where, I could come to terms with that loss and um, where I could feel I was okay mm. and continue with my life and feel stronger. Yeah. I'm so glad you came to that point and, and are working with us in, in all the wonderful ways that you do at, at present. I was thinking um, when you were talking about standing in those fields and just wondering about all the the sensory input that that was coming into you um you know the the sounds you would have experienced um being overwhelmed by the, you know the fragrances there and and i was thinking how we we know so much about how we could be triggered mm -hmm. by sensory input in a negative way that overwhelms our ability to cope in in a negative way but um, yeah, there's also the positive psychology that tells us that we can also be triggered. Those very um, positive emotions can be triggered as well yeah. by sensory input yeah. and, and we can yeah, re-experience them. I was thinking if, if that was happening for you as well. Oh, absolutely. It's something I, I you know, probably failed to mention that a lot of the, the memories were triggered by the senses. And as we know, you know, with the clients we work with a lot, you know, um, you know, People might be triggered by, you know, traumatic memory might be triggered by the smells, by, um, by sounds, you know, by, by, you know, by stimulating like that. But for me, yeah, it, absolutely. That's what it did. That's, you know, feeling the, the ground on my feet and, and, um, and, you know, the, 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 the smells of cut grass, you know, brought back, you know, some of these yeah. extremely vivid memories and, and, and that was probably one of the reasons as to why I was so drawn to it because it was, yeah, it elicited such positivity. And I, you know, after experiencing that, I felt stronger. And yeah, yeah. so that, that, that was the reason as to why I engaged in so. And so given all the experience you've had working with young people outside of a school context, but also within schools, what are some of the things you've picked up over the years about what really helps young people and children recover and, and what can schools and the people that work there contribute to that recovery? Well, I guess I, I can talk on um, some of the ways in which um, schools can contribute to the recovery. Um, absolutely. A little bit after, but I, I guess I can talk to how, these experiences have influenced my therapeutic work um, with with young people and particularly in terms of some of the approaches that that I've come to take um, in working um, 
with predominantly adolescents. And, you know, of course, you know, you know, whilst I use different approaches, you know, such as CBT or compassion focus therapy, at, um, I think um, the use of narrative approaches has become important for me, um, perhaps largely, you know, through my own deconstruction process, you know, coupled with the need um, to enrich in stories, you know, alternative, alternative stories. Um, to those which the, the, the traumatized might tell themselves, the victim of war, torture, and racism. Um, you know, like similar to what I had done for myself, you know, I, I work with clients to help reflect on um, alternative survivor stories, you know, being, survivor, being survivors of some of the most difficult circumstances imaginable, imaginable and, you know, the skills and talents learned along the way, you know, coupled with their hopes, dreams, and skills. And, you know, I might use, you know, some different tools such as maybe tree of life and, you know, which some people might've heard of, which is an exercise based um, on the idea of using the tree as a metaphor to tell the stories of our lives. And, um, and we talk on different parts of the tree. So the roots, um, the roots of the tree um, uh, around, um, getting people to talk on their, their, their family history, you know, where they're from, um, um, you know, the names of people who've taught them most in their life, um, you know, things around the ground, so the place in which, um, in which people live um, and, acti and activities they're engaged in within their daily life, the, the trunk. So the trunk is, um, signifies a, an opportunity for participants to to write their skills and abilities and things that they're good at. Um, the branches, the branches are so wonderful. They are, you know, it, 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 um, it gets participants and, and, and clients to write about their hopes and dreams and when wishes for the future and, and the leaves of the tree. Um, these, um, this, this, this gets people to talk about significant others in their lives. And I've come to really love the use of metaphor in life and mm. um, similarly I might use team of life um, which similarly you know is, is quite popular with young people and it's a it's a it's a populist narrative um, methodology um, which I've used in both group and individual work and it uses sporting metaphors in the same way that um, I was able to use sport in my own pathway to you know towards recovery and it encourages young people to recognize the skills strength and resilience in their life teams um, and it's it's quite a playful approach which um, engages young people through the language of sports um, rather than the language of problems um, and it enables them to reflect upon you know their, the things that they've done well in the past their previous accomplishments and recognize how they can overcome obstacles for the future and how they can set how they can set goals as well so you were talking, um, so you asked about how um, oh, some of the yeah. ways that schools can contribute? Yeah, yeah. What is it about the, the school environment, um, how, how teachers and, and school wellbeing, student wellbeing staff um, interact with students? What are some of the elements you've picked up that um, are really supportive of young people's recovery from refugee trauma? You know, I guess there are many ways. Um, in which schools can can support the pathway to recovery for young people. And, you know, I acknowledge that there's so much good work being done 
not just you know not just in New South Wales but around the world and but I guess maybe from maybe the personal deconstruction um, as you know as I meant as I mentioned earlier is is simply necessary to the collective um, perhaps in terms of the curriculum and school processes and mm. you know the reflection on on who is it for and is it relevant to all learners? You know, does it generally benefit them and is it inclusive to their unique identities? Furthermore, you know, how how may the very way in which stories are told have a psychological impact in the way that young people see themselves? And if I think about my own experience in schooling in Australia, you know, I, I also think about you know, the, the psychopathology of colonized peoples. And I think about the work of Franz Fanon, you know, who described um, the inferiority of, or the feeling of the psychopathology of the colonized body, um, one of inferiority, um, either conscious or unconscious, and, and how we as a country um, can seek to change that, you know, because as I mentioned before, stories are, stories are important. Representation is important. And if we're, if we're a truly inclusive society, um, you know, which indicated a fair go, um, as our oft-mentioned national narrative goes, you know, then we, um, then we probably should invest a lot more in that, you know. Otherwise, seemingly, it's just a fair go for some and, and, and others should just suck it up, feel grateful and conform, you know, which is how, you know, how, how very convenient and... and it's often those who already have other proponents of the latter, but but no, I, I really argue that you know if we have a global humanitarian program where we accept thousands of people from overseas contexts, we purposely choose to take diverse people from South Sudan, the Yazidis, Rohingya people, Syrians, Iraqis, and many others, and you know acknowledging that the greatest burden in um, humanitarian context is on developing countries and that we are an exceedingly rich country and have the capacity to receive, mm. um, it is furthermore disingenuous to later not accept that attitudes are changed, which welcome, and, and, you know, and we welcome the change and simply invest um, in a form of curricula and other ways, um, which is done to, to help people feel welcome in a new home. What are some of the examples of some of the best practice you've seen in that space? Oh, there's, there's so many wonderful examples. I mean, what, one of the things which we do in our team is around um, uh, we, 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 we often sit down with schools and we, um, we, we do an audit in terms of processes, in terms of things which might support um, learners with the refugees experience feeling more welcome um, and um, it, it is looking at the the specific intricacies of that school so it's a localized it's a localized um, approach and and looking at how we can help people feel more welcome and I mean one, one example is what was say in Mount Druitt where um, you had quite a high percentage of African um, young people had been resettled to Australia and enrolled in the school and 
and the school was actively trying to help people feel a sense of value, right? So um, they would, there, there was a specifically African, um, uh, a, a project which was um, showing, um, giving young people an opportunity to showcase their culture in a positive way, their music, their food, the things that they believed were a strength for them, not just to help them help them feel um, a sense of place um, and respect for their culture, but also providing opportunities for for, for for the mainstream kids to you know to look and 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 to and to gain a new appreciation for um, for what people were bringing with them. So that's just one example. Yeah, moving away from that deficit model would be really helpful. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Well, thank you for being just so generous with your insights and reflections today. Is, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up, wrap up today? I think that's about it, really. Um, you know, if anyone is interested, you know, they can look at, um, you know, the, the, the Hints for Healing website. Um, otherwise, I guess I can be found on a plethora of different social media platforms. You just have to type in my name. I'm also found on LinkedIn. Um, I'm very happy to discuss with anyone about anything in relation to this work. Um, be happy to receive feedback and also, um, you know, to, to engage in any conversation that anyone might have. you enjoyed listening to Sean reflect on his rich and varied professional and personal experiences. I found his thoughts on the importance of social connectivity and overcoming adversity particularly insightful and also his experiences of seeing people find a sense of belonging and purpose through sport. Sean also gave us a bit of an introduction to some narrative therapy approaches to healing. So I'll put a link to the Dulwich Center in the show notes where you can find training, resources and information on narrative therapy. In the show notes, you'll find a link to Sean's blog, Sydney Soccer Stories, as well as links to other publications that Sean referred to. And if you enjoyed today's podcast or found it useful in some way, please share it with others and leave us a like, a rating or a review if your podcast app allows for it. Take good care, everyone. Until next time, farewell.